Hey there, Slava Connection listeners. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Joshua Yaffa. He is a Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker and a published author of Between Two Fires. Matthew, what did we talk about today? We talked about his experience feeling a part of Moscow during this pandemic. Then we talked about his recent article about disinformation and the information wars. And then we wrapped up about his new book and I thought he conceptualized it really well. And I was really excited to have this conversation with Joshua Yaffa because of his overall focus, less so on Putin and more so on the nuances of Russia's people. As someone who has family actually living in a post-Soviet sphere, it's a it's a honestly a breath of fresh air to hear not just the Kremlin, not just government, but to actually focus on the people. So I personally really appreciated this episode and I was really excited to speak with him. So take a listen. You're going to love it. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Joshua Yafta, thank you very much for joining us on the Slava Connection. I wanted to ask, actually, ask, actually, <laughs> we briefly actually spoke this summer. I was part of the Monterey Summer Symposium, so I was very lucky oh, enough to kind of great. Yeah, cool. hear you yeah. speak to our small group. And at the time, I think you were in Moscow. Uh, are you still in Moscow now? I am, yeah. I mean, um, you know, these days, like wherever you were in uh uh, spring is kind of where you've ended up in, in, uh, fall. Right. So, um, yeah, still, still here managed to travel a little bit around Russia this summer, but other than that, aren't too many places to go. So how, how is Moscow right now? Just in the midst of the pandemic and midst of all this news coming out about a potential vaccine, like the, all, this whole atmosphere, but you're directly, you're right in it. How, how is it? I guess. Life? Yeah. Though after eight years, it's a bit, you know, maybe in a way that's almost journalistically unhelpful, you get a little accustomed to things uh, and you sort of don't notice the, what's interesting and, and weird right now, as in the, what is it? The 28th of September, there is talk, not just talk, but the, the unfortunately the data to back it up of a, a second wave of the virus coming to Moscow, just as it has in Europe and Elsewhere, I guess that was sort of inevitable, though it maybe took a little bit longer to happen in Moscow than it had in some other European capitals. So maybe there was some hope, however unfounded or naive, that Moscow would avoid that fate. But in the past five days, the case numbers have started shooting back up again. And, and along with that talk of, will there have to be some kind of uh, lockdown measures, maybe not quite as extensive as they were in the spring, but will the city react? And everyone's kind of in a bit of... Um, anxious anticipation of, of what turn the pandemic is going to take. But other than that, or, or in, in parallel to that, as you suggested, there are trials of the vaccine going on. I saw something today about the staff of the foreign staff of RT, the channel got the vaccine, the, the first foreigners to get the vaccine. So <laughs> that was, you. In, yeah, interesting. Very yeah, proud. I don't know, that, makes, that makes them brave or lucky or, or both. So there's talk of vaccine in the air, but you know, no one's expecting that to reach the wide population anytime soon. And, and in fact, it may not happen in Russia all that sooner than it happens in other places, right? Despite like Russia getting out ahead of registering the vaccine, doing that in August when no one else had, it doesn't actually seem like that's going to mean the Russian people en masse get a coronavirus vaccine necessarily earlier than people in China, UK, US, elsewhere. So I don't think I'm going to be offered the vaccine or, or friends or colleagues anytime soon. I had a question while we're kind of on this topic, you know, doing your journalism work, 
do you still kind of have time to feel connected to the events and culture specifically of Moscow, uh, the daily developments of, of this city? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, in, in ways that felt a little scary and, and then I didn't take advantage of fully in the summer, a lot of the restrictions or basically all the restrictions were lifted. So summer in Moscow was almost a normal, glorious Moscow summer, which which I love. I didn't necessarily myself kind of take part 100% in, in all of the festivities uh, that go into Moscow summer, but, but the city very much felt back to normal. And there were ways to, if you kind of let your mind abstract out a bit of it or sort of squint, you know, you could be fooled into thinking that everything was was normal and I felt as kind of connected to the city as, as ever. But the other reality is, is that even in the times when in, in April, May, when the most strict quarantine was in force in Moscow as it was in lots of places, in a way I still felt connected to the city because that's what the whole city was going through. It wasn't like my private or personal quarantine. Right, it was it was solidarity, like, yeah. Right, it was like a you know 15 million person um, quarantine. So in a way I felt that was like a very Moscow experience. I felt very connected to what was going on in Moscow even though that connection was largely virtual and from the inside of my apartment. So there is something um, that does kind of breed a, a, for a sort of automatic solidarity or at least like a solidarity of experience in, in the pandemic. And so even when I haven't been physically or immediately connected to Moscow, I still felt part of like the bigger story of coronavirus in Moscow. I felt like I've, I've been a witness to that story and I've been very present and, and aware of that story. Kind of going along with, you know, you're a Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker, as well as a published author. But I feel like you find yourself in an interesting time right now. Arguably, U.S.-Russia relations haven't been any worse in quite some time. And with November right around the corner, disinformation is in the air. And I wanted to touch on the article that you wrote uh, this month, actually, regarding whether or not Russian meddling is as dangerous as we think, because you brought up a lot of very interesting points in that. Certainly, yes, there is a lot of Russian-produced disinformation out there, but it's become almost like this idea of a trope now, this whole foreign interference thing, when domestic disinformation is just as prevalent, and that you you posit that the Kremlin at this point doesn't really have to do anything. It just kind of has to stir the pot. So what are you expecting to see in October and November? I think more of the same in what I referenced in that article in The New Yorker that you spoke about and that we're seeing. I think that on the one hand, the American public and the American news media are a little bit, whether they're more savvy or more cynical, I don't know. I guess that the line between those two is actually pretty subtle, but I think people are definitely more aware of the ways that their information space can be manipulated this time around than they were in 2016. Maybe almost hyper aware, overly aware. People are like primed to see you know, bots and trolls where they might actually be real human beings. But nonetheless, I think that does mean it's much harder for kind of elementary disinformation 1.0 kind of stuff to penetrate the conversation and, and to take over the conversation the way it did at certain points times in 2016. But but the other issue, the much bigger issue, and that this really is the main theme of my article, is we're living in a disinformation vortex of our own making as Americans, with Trump as as the disinfor- disinformer in chief who who uses the pulpit and the megaphone of the White House to spread uh, outright falsehoods uh, or, or at least very misleading facts or manipulation of facts. And when it comes to the coronavirus with, with very real world life and death consequences, these aren't just disinformation tropes relating to his political opponents. It's not just a question of you know Hillary Clinton's email servers. It's a question of 
measures that will save lives or potentially cost lives. And so when you look at the scale and, and the impact from disinformation, and this is what I talk about extensively in, in the article, what Trump is capable of doing and does do with the pulpit and the megaphone of the office of the presidency is so far and beyond anything that Russian trolls could try and do with you know, fake or front Facebook accounts and, and so on. And, and that's not even to mention homegrown conspiracy theories like QAnon that bleed out into the real world. I mentioned in the article this ultimately fake piece of disinformation about a so-called or would-be band of Antifa militants on the way to a town in Oregon and people came out with guns and bulletproof vests to ward off this phantom threat, a situation that could have ended in tragedy and violence. So when you look at, at disinformation by judging its impact, right, not just the existence of disinformation, because no one, including myself, denies the existence of Russian-produced disinformation. But if we if we stop focusing, or, or rather focus more on what does that disinformation actually lead to, what impact does it have in the real world, then I think Russian-produced disinformation starts to look relatively a much smaller threat than the kind we, we produce ourselves as Americans. Again, that's not to say it's not a threat or it doesn't exist. It's just a question of where do we place it on the scale of how much damage it can really cause. Right. You bring up actually a quote from George Kennan saying that much depends on the health and vigor of our own society. And it it gave me the image of, you know, a doctor putting putting their hand to the pulse of the U.S. And I, I, I find that image worrying because in terms of, you know, how how much discord there currently is in the United States and division and this disbalance of listening to Fox News, it seems very easy to just throw anything out there and it'll make a difference. It'll actually have an effect that we can't even sort of judge the repercussions of even as we're watching it happen. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I couldn't say it better better myself that we're really our own worst enemy when it comes to disinformation. And, and that quote you mentioned from the article and your previous question about the Kremlin just having to you know, flick its wrist and stir the informational pot, because there's so much distrust and animus built into our political culture, Right now, it doesn't take a whole lot for an actor like the Kremlin to not even necessarily interfere and disrupt the electoral process, but to be seen or be suspected of this interfering and disrupting the electoral process. And that's another point I talk about in that article, building on, on some wonderful books about disinformation that I reviewed in that piece. It was essentially a long book review essay of a number of books. And there's a the book I'm thinking of in, in this context is Thomas Ridd's Active Measures. And, and he talks about how for a, a quote unquote active measure to work, active measure being the, the translation of the Russian term for these sorts of covert disinformation operations. It's not so much a, a question of kind of objective merit. In fact, it's impossible to judge the efficacy of a active measure based on some sort of series uh, or, or chart of objective criteria, it ultimately is a, is a political or, or collective decision, as, as Ridd argues. In other words, a society has to believe that the operation was a success and then it was a success. And in that sense, I think the Kremlin operation was indeed extraordinarily successful in 2016. And let's see how successful it is again in 2020. But the point being, we'll never really get to the bottom of you know, what was the precise, measurable, quantifiable effect of a Kremlin disinformation operation. What we'll be able to tell is, do we act as if that operation was decisive in some way? And if we act that way, well, then it was. It was. It was. It was. 
Starting in 2016, we saw this trend where, you know, we accuse the Russians of interfering in the elections, and then they accuse us of interfering in their elections. And the uh, the upper house of parliament in Russia has these investigations, and they also believe that, you know, we are interfering with them. And most recently, Putin yet again brought up this proposal of a cyber pact that in Russian, the proposal has like information security, which for me just kind of sends up alarm bells of like, what is this information security concept? Because I think that there's some misunderstanding in the, in the connotations. My question is, is, do the Russians feel that they are properly preparing their people against foreign disinformation, that they're properly warning them? I mean, how, how does kind of the flip side of this issue get talked about in Russia and how are they preparing children? Because you also cite in your piece about how so few Americans know civics, but are the Russians training their children to get better at civics or media literacy or anything like that? I think the absolute most important thing to understand when it comes to Russian strategy and thinking on disinformation question is that as far as the Russian political leadership is concerned, all the way up to Putin himself, they are absolutely adamant that they are essentially carrying out a defensive or reactive strategy. I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm not saying that that's the kind of correct analysis, but it's an absolutely genuine and sincere, sincere analysis as far as Putin and other Kremlin thinkers are concerned. The way they see it, the United States, the West more broadly, but really Washington has been for decades, not even since the collapse of the Soviet Union, but before, all the way going back to the twilight of the Cold War, the United States has been using and misusing information so as to manipulate the minds uh, of, of Russian citizens to corrupt their, their thinking and their politics and to use the, those operations to weaken whatever regime happens to be in power in the Kremlin. That is the very genuine and very sincere, certain belief of Putin and those around him. And so to the extent that Russia is itself carrying out disinformation operations, which it is, Putin and those around him would see them as reactive, defensive answers to what the United States has been doing for a generation. And again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to make false equivalencies, and I'm not saying that that analysis really would hold up against kind of objective scrutiny. I think we're comparing apples and oranges in a lot of the cases, and we're not really talking about like versus like. Nonetheless, if we want to understand Russian strategy, Russian strategy would, would see itself as actually the aggrieved party and the victim of successive campaigns of disinformation carried out by the West. And, and they're, to the extent they've gotten into the game, they've gotten into the game late and as a uh, response to uh, operations carried out against them. And so do you think that the defensive measures and this defensive posture that they're taking is paying uh, domestic political dividends? I mean, is it is this strategy kind of working in terms of communications with the Russian populace? Are people buying it? I'm not sure that to the extent Russia, say in 2016 and, and, in, and in the years since, trying to, to carry out various operations and, and, um, and misleading uh, or, or disinformation operations to support Trump, say, or to generally heighten the political temperature in the United States and to breed distrust and, and anger and frustration and all of that. I'm not sure that any of those operations are really carried out with the Russian domestic audience in mind. I think that's really about achieving the foreign policy ambitions and, and goals of Putin and a small number of people around him as concerns the, the foreign arena. And I don't think that's really a policy that is meant to be supported um, by the Russian people 
beyond selling to the Russian audience this idea that we are doing what they've been doing to us for so many years and, and playing on a very cynical, let's say, understanding of politics that's quite widespread in Russia in which people assume that all states and all governments are up to these dirty games and that no one country has clean hands in this regard. And so the Russian public largely didn't really get what the fuss was about when the United States reacted with such alarm after 2016 to the notion and to the facts, really, of of Russian interference in that electoral campaign. It wasn't that Russians denied the the, the fact of that operation or didn't, didn't believe that their country was guilty. It was more like, what's the big deal? All countries are guilty in the same way. Why is America acting holier than thou? And and in that sense, the Kremlin uh, had a pretty easy argument to make to the people, to its own people, in terms of defending itself, which was a pretty thinly veiled defense, or not even really a defense at all, the sense of trying to prove definitive lack of guilt. It was more playing to this idea that all countries are guilty of these kinds of operations and, and Russia is being singled out unfairly and unjustly by a hypocritical West, the United States, the most of all. Well, Joshua, I think we would be remiss in not touching on your book that came out this year, uh, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia. I got to read it this summer. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it is that, you know, despite the fact that Putin is in the title. Putin, I think, is an ever-present character. It's not really about Putin. You structure it in a way that it's a collection of stories about a lot of just everyday Russians. You kind of bounce from one main character to another and describe their stories and their narratives. And one of the main quotes that really stood out to me in the introduction of your book, especially it stood out to me because when you have so many books right now about Russia that are focused on disinformation or on Putin, you wrote that The most edifying and important character for journalistic study in Russia is not Putin, but those people whose habits, inclinations, and internal moral calculations elevated Putin to his Kremlin throne and now perform the small daily work that in aggregate keeps him there. So before we get into really the crux of the book, I wanted to actually discuss how you came about writing this book in general, how you found these people to interview. What was your inspiration? I think like a lot of books, I came to it from just a a moment of personal curiosity in that I found myself as a journalist writing a lot of Putin-centric or Putin-heavy articles about what's happening in Russia, that I found that wanting, just on a personal level, that there was some part of my interest and curiosity in the country that I wasn't managing to sate with all of these articles about what Putin's up to, what's Putin thinking, why did Putin do this, did Putin do this? And I just became myself drawn to this moral gray zone that I saw so many people around me inhabiting. And I was curious about it. I wasn't judgmental. I, I wasn't dismissive of it. It was really fascinating for me to see how people who I respected, who I knew in some cases as friends, or at least as, as, as colleagues, uh, sometimes sources, to watch how people who I, in my estimation, were kind of deep down, or at least originally driven by good motives, the kind of earnest, virtuous motives that you or I would recognize as worth pursuing, how in a place like Putin's Russia, to make good on those motives, to make good on those ambitions, they were drawn into this inevitable dance of compromise with with the state. And I thought that that dynamic was a really telling one, not a unique one, not not at all that the only country in the world where those sorts of compromises happen is Russia, not at all. But I thought it had 
unique explanatory and hopefully storytelling power in the Russian context for making sense of what it's really like in Putin's Russia. You know, a question I found myself answering or trying to answer in articles I was writing and feeling like maybe I wasn't really getting across this notion of what it's really like. And, and also in conversations with friends and family back in the U.S. when I would come home for visits and people would ask, you know, so what's it really like? And I felt like I wasn't quite neither in my articles, neither in those conversations getting across some things that maybe I wasn't even ready to fully articulate myself, but pursuing the book, reporting the book, and then writing it was a way of working through these questions for myself. And then getting it out on the page was a way of answering some questions that, that I found just personally uh, fascinating and hopefully fruitful for, for journalistic research. Speaking for myself and Matt, like seeing stories just from a perspective of the everyday man in Russia is a breath of fresh air when you do kind of encounter Putin day after day after day. And you kind of want to get at the actual people because you can't, it's always so tempting to lump all of Russia or all of these post-Soviet spheres into this sort of group and kind of generalize them that way. But yeah, I, that's what I really enjoyed about your book is that it kind of divides and adds facets to, to, to Russia that you don't often see, which gets me into, let's talk about Wileyness. You bring in this idea of this sort of Darwinian coping mechanism that Russians have instituted. It's kind of started in the Soviet era. The Russian sociologist Yuri Lovato sort of brought it up. So could you speak a little bit about that? Sure. The, the wily man is a notion that quite legendary and justifiably so Russian sociologist Yuri Lovato coined in an essay with that same title, The Wily Man, in the year 2000. And it was his attempt to try and work through why a certain Soviet personality type, Homo Sovieticus, I guess, as it's often called, didn't fully disappear with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, as Lovada himself actually expected. He was really an optimist about perestroika and the collapse of the Soviet Union. He thought that this personality type, which, which he thought was an unfortunate outcome of the Soviet Union, this person who was suspicious, aggressive, prone to doublethink, but also passive in, in relation to the, to the state, someone who kind of needed actually, or who, who's depended, shall we say, on, on a system of, of compromise and delusion, including self-delusion in order to, to function, that that person would disappear along with the disappearance of the Soviet Union. And when that personality type didn't fully disappear, and in fact, showed its persistence and began to reproduce itself, Levada became, I think it's fair to say, distraught or at least confused. And his essay, The Wily Man, was his attempt to work through what had happened and, and who was this personality type if, if he or she could no longer be called Soviet with the Soviet Union now at that point, 10 years, 10 years gone and, and, and growing further distant with every month and every year, there must be something deeper going on. And, and the wily man was Lovada's diagnosis of, of who is this person. The kind of habits and inclinations must be described with a different vocabulary. And, and wiliness is the term that Lovada came up with to describe this person who's very savvy, who's very clever, who's indeed very wily, but that wiliness is deployed as a, as a tool for, for navigating essentially compromise, for understanding where one can eke out some personal advantage from the state, where one should bend to the state's uh, will or to the state's priorities. Where can you cheat the state? Where do you actually have to be obedient to the state? How do you outwardly profess loyalty while inwardly perhaps doubting or even 
criticizing that system. So that whole dance of, of compromises, I called it earlier in our conversation that I was so interested in describing for my book, is all encapsulated in Levada's idea of the wily man. And how did you go about casting your collection of characters? Like, did you find that people were open to being interviewed by you and discussing their stories? Because some of this gets, it's quite in depth and has a lot of nuance, but it always makes me, make me wonder a little bit because you do find people are, are cautious to speak more openly in Russia sometimes. So what was that process like? Sure. Not everyone wanted to talk. And, and of course there are people who aren't in the book because they didn't want to be in the book, right? So I, I didn't have a hundred percent success in terms of reaching out to characters and, and sources. That said, I, I was guided by a few principles in, in parallel. One was that I, I wanted a certain representative cross-section of Russian life. So I knew I wanted someone from state media, television in particular. I knew I wanted someone from the Russian Orthodox Church, a priest. I knew I wanted someone from Chechnya who could, whose life could speak to the experience, the very particular and, and important and tragic role of, of Chechnya throughout the Putin years. I knew I wanted someone who could speak to the question of historical memory, specifically the historical memory of Stalinism and the Gulag and the way that history is thought about and remembered or, or not remembered today. So I had, I don't know if it's fair to call them archetypes, but I knew that there were these fields or aspects of Russian society that I wanted to get at, and I wanted to get at through the lives of, of characters. So that was the first layer to my casting call. I knew I needed to find a priest. I knew I needed to find someone from Russian television and so on. I also wanted, as a kind of second order priority, geographic diversity. I, so I didn't want an all Moscow book. That would be very easy, too easy, too natural. I live in Moscow. My Most of my kind of friends and contacts are in Moscow. And I'm just, I'm here all the time. So I, I kind of know the Moscow scene more than I know the scene in Siberia. But I, I didn't want to write a book that would end up being just about people in Moscow. So I had to force myself a bit to narrow or rather sorry, to, to keep my geographic search from being too narrow. And then by the time I located or identified people I thought might be interesting and could fit in the ways I just described, you know, I was pleasantly surprised by how often they were open to it, open to talking to me and narrating not just their own lives, but really drilling down pretty deep onto this question of compromise and, and why they had made certain compromises and, and what they thought they had gained from them, what maybe they thought they had lost or what price they had paid for those compromises. But they were open for a pretty raw and I think honest conversation about how they view the questions of wildliness, even if they didn't use the term and, and didn't necessarily see themselves as a manifestation of Levada's archetype. Nonetheless, they were perfectly aware and, and alive to this dynamic and actually had some pretty interesting and, and honest things to say about it. And I was very grateful to them and am grateful for their openness. And I think that they were, if not exactly eager, then at least willing and, and, and kind of interested in, in being heard out on their terms, right? That I came to them, I hope, without judgment. I really wanted to understand why they had made the choices they had and, and why they had gone for the compromises they did and what they hoped to get out of those compromises. And was it worth it? Where may it have not been worth it? And I just wanted to let them tell that story in their own words. And I think that there was something I don't want to exaggerate or, or, or sort of make my personal role in this sound somehow grander or more virtuous than it was. But, but maybe, if not 
you know, catharsis, then maybe they found something at least reassuring or enjoyable in having this third party listener and ultimately narrator hear them out and tell their story as they themselves understood their story. And I think that's what I achieved, or that's very much, very much what I tried to achieve in the book was to somehow inhabit their own thinking to, to keep the voice my own, but to, to use my authorial voice to, to get across how they understand and experience their own lives. I, I want to continue on with your kind of your last point about how you how you set up this environment whereby people feel that you're an honest broker and how you kind of maintain your objectivity as a journalist going through a process like this. How just how do you conceptualize um, your approach or what are the tactics that you use to make sure that you're not going to color the the guests thinking or their responses or anything like that? I think here it was really helpful that I'm an outsider, being a, um, a non-Russian, being the foreign correspondent who's dropped on to this new and unfamiliar terrain from some far, far away planet really helped because it wasn't even an, an act. I really am kind of outside these, some of, some of the dynamics and, and, and the history and the context that can make these conversations so fraught and angst-filled for, for Russians to have amongst themselves sometimes, right? And, and especially for Russian journalists, Russian independent journalists, liberal journalists, I understand this completely and I have great respect and sympathy for them, but because they are under so much pressure, whether it's economic or, or political, they see themselves admirably as occupying a kind of adversarial oftentimes position vis-a-vis the authorities. In fact, in a way that perhaps mirrors the role of journalism in the U.S. or anywhere, right? That there's something, I think, correct and, and, and noble about having uh, the, that kind of relationship when you are when you are reporting on your own, as it were, leaders on your own system. I don't know if my role in Russia as a foreign correspondent is to do that kind of accountability journalism that I think is so important to uh, be done in the U.S. and so important that Russian journalists are doing it with Russian authorities here in Russia. I think that to the extent, you know, I have to choose one over the other and maybe it's a false dichotomy and I, I can really do it all. And I hope I do to some extent manage to, to cover all these bases, but I see my primary role as more interpretive and explanatory in, in, in explaining Russia as, it, as I know it to an audience that maybe is, is far away from Russia, is far away from Russia, and perhaps doesn't have the opportunity to, to ever come here, but is curious about what it's like. And so I think that transfers into my approach or demeanor with my subjects. I really do just want to understand them. I'm not there to hold them to account. I have written for The New Yorker and elsewhere, lots of pieces about waste and corruption and malfeasance and abuse, human rights abuses committed by the Russian authorities. So I, I do, even in my own work, very much see the importance and necessity of that kind of journalism. But the book was something a little bit different. I wasn't trying to hold my characters to account. I was really trying to understand them and to translate or transfer that understanding as best as, best as I could to readers in the hope that that would actually lead to a kind of macro or, or, or bigger picture understanding of, of Russia in the age of Putin. And so I think that that came through in my conversations with, with my sources. And I've now said this already, I'm answering your question, that, that they could sense that I wasn't there to do like a deep investigative project that would 
put them against the wall and, and sort of shake out their pockets and so sort of see what they were hiding. Though I, I definitely did not just take their word for it in my interviews. I did a lot of reporting around them to try and figure out for myself where they might indeed be softening the, the truth or, or misleading me. But nonetheless, I was there to understand them on their own terms and to try and translate and transfer that understanding to, to the reader. And, and perhaps that is one factor that meant that they opened up to me. Joshua, we did want to ask, obviously, we're going to keep an eye on The New Yorker for any new articles from you, but what's next for you? Are there any new books in the pipeline? Definitely no new books. I'm uh, very happily returning to what feels like the short form of long form journalism at The New Yorker. I never would have thought that, you know, seven and eight thousand word narrative pieces would feel like, um, you know, a a kind of short, self-contained journalistic exercise. But after working on a book for several years, it indeed is a is a pleasure that I missed and I'm happy to work in again for a while. And, you know, this book, as I mentioned, really came out of a genuine uh, personal curiosity and interest. And, and I was trying to answer some questions for myself first and foremost. And so I'm in no rush to force a second book. I don't even know what it would be because I don't yet have those kinds of questions that I did um, in advance of, uh, of this book. But mainly it's just about lifestyle and, and, and workflow and getting to enjoy being a, a human again a bit uh, who can have a social life though. Uh, <laughs> the uh, age of coronavirus is not exactly the best time to suddenly, you know, have free time where you feel like you can go, you know, travel and see people and enjoy your spare time. A bit unfortunate timing in that regard, but, but no, I, I'm, I'm in no rush to, uh, to find or, or force a, a second book anytime soon. Well, thank you so much for being on with us today. We hope to find your next question sometime soon because I really enjoy it between two fires. So thank you very much for being on. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We'd like to thank Joshua Yaffa again for speaking with us. Highly recommend you check out The New Yorker and read some of his articles there or read his book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. And while you're wandering on Amazon, picking out more books to add to your bookshelf that you might not get to until 2022, why not give us a review on Apple Podcasts, anywhere else you happen to listen to this episode? We always appreciate hearing from listeners and your kind words will certainly, hopefully, get us through November 2020 and perhaps even into next year. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Please, please listen. Please leave us a review. Please. We're so hungry. We can't eat. Michelle won't feed us if you don't review. It's been months since our last review. We ate Tom's legs. Sorry, Tom. Houston, we have a problem. It's cool. He's tall. He's so tall, he won't miss them. He'll still be taller than all of us. He's got those good Rehnquist jeans. It's not uh, typical Texas. <laughs> <laughs>